Okay, so we're coming up on uh, a big birthday coming up. Yeah, but I don't usually celebrate my birthday. I'm not talking about you. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, your birthday. What? Uh, Nobody knows. I'm just kidding. Double nickels. Double nickels. I can't drive 55. <laughs> it's a Sammy Hagar birthday. Wait, you know what? I'm you know what I'm just remembering right now. Uh oh. Or not remembering. You know, I'm thinking of right now is when y- you were born. Jacques yeah. Cousteau was your age right now when you were born t- today. That's why I was born. Son exactly. of a bitch. <laughs> That's amazing. What timing? What timing? Yeah, uh, you're going to be never thought of that. That's pretty. You're cool. going to be 55. Jacques Cousteau was 55 in 65. Cool. That's pretty cool, man. It is cool. And uh, yeah. this year, uh, June 11th, would uh, he would have been 110 years old if he was still around. Quadruple nickels. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Let me ask you a question. Is it just me, or has Cousteau looked like he's about 110 years old his whole life? No, I think that's just, he's just, you know, got that most, most skinny, of you know, drawn-in face. I don't know. I don't. I think the camera added, uh, you know, a few decades on him. I, I'm going to guess in real life he was quite different looking, you know. Yeah, but I thought the same thing. He always kind of looked older. Which gave him a little more authoritative uh, feel, but right? Because we uh, he didn't have a beard though. He, he didn't have the beard. No, <laughs> we forget that so much of his life really was prior to being Captain Cousteau. Like all that stuff in the World War II era, right? You know his time in the Navy, the developing he, of the Aqua. All that stuff occurred. Well before and he became then, famous. Yeah, and then when you see, you know, the Silent World, like he'd have been in his forties when Silent World came out. That's um Yeah, like uh yeah, he's a like, like basically would have been the age I am right now. Right. On on the Calypso, captain in the boat, and really getting ready to do the stuff that he was famous for. Right, that that first major motion picture. Yeah, in full color. Exactly. Basically chronicling his Teams exploits in many ways uh, around the around the oceans. Yeah, amazing, amazing. I uh, 
So he's in his 40s just getting started in a, well, just becoming famous, you know, starting to become famous in his 40s, really st- and beginning an endeavor of a whole new career. So I guess for those of you who think it's too late to start something new, James. Yeah, I'm, so I'm James. thinking the same thing. I need a boat. I need a boat. You, there's your inspiration right there. Of course, you know, you can't copy Jacques now, but you can use him for inspiration. And uh, yeah, that's yeah. something that's something extremely amazing, especially in diving. You know, in his 40s, he's doing these he's just beginning to do insane dives. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you when you look at what they were doing, too, I mean, they're 200, 250 feet. On air. On air, yes. <laughs> and, See, uh, narcosis just... is beginning to set in. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think it hit a little bit further shallow and, there. And a lot of it, you know, you was, was scripted right. for, the, for the movie. Because there's that scene early on where uh, Falco and uh, I forget who it was. Andre uh, LeBon. Got, got super. It's Andre LeBon, yeah. Oh, yeah, he got super narked out and... <laughs> When they were hunting the lobster, yes, yes, and, and he's uh, shaking him. <laughs> yeah, Falco's get up like, there. Falco sends him up. He goes, "I should have kept a closer watch because he forgot to decompress." Zenobskull. <laughs> and then they throw him in that that tiny little chamber. Yes. Ooh, he's can like, you imagine? Oh, Captain Six Cousteau? hours, four hours. Oh, that thing's. Yeah, he's like, "How long do I have to be in this coffin?" <laughs> Three hours. And then the then the the, the cook rings the bell and they lock it up. <laughs> Okay, see you in a bit. We're going to eat. Yeah, that's uh, the whole thing I kept thinking about is your arms are at your side, and there's really no room to get them to, like, you can move your elbows out. Oh, no, not in the chamber he was in. I mean, that, I that thing was 18 inches in diameter, probably. Exactly. You know? If you're a fat guy, no, if you, I don't want to offend anybody. If you're a rather obese guy, right? There were no obese guys. I mean, Falco was probably the biggest, and he was he was just stocky. He was a uh, he was a stocky guy, by no means obese or fat or anything. No, like that. that 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 whole team. I think he had what, what like twelve people on that team. Yes, uh, and everyone that was in the diving, the ones who were divers, les musquemers, <laughs> they were they were all pretty damn fit guys. They were skinny as rails, even even in their like even into their forties. Yeah, which is where like. Didi was. I mean, you look at Didi. Didi's lean and mean. Yeah. So yeah, let's um, let's get into this little celebration of Jacques Cousteau's birthday, hundred and ten years ago. Zephaza of scuba diving invites you. To his birthday party. Is that what his invite would say? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I am the father of scuba diving. The Great Dive Podcast is... No, it would, say, it, would, it would say... Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. You are, you are cordially invited to attend... <laughs> <laughs> the birthday party of... Myself. The, of, of myself, <laughs> the father of the Aqualong. There will be... Much conversation about marine conservation Here's and a Falco. great story. Sir <laughs> <Yes. laughs> le monde du silence. Join me. Where we will have shark soup and 
hors d'oeuvres consisting of whale bits and little tiny crackers. <laughs> <laughs> My chief diver, Falco, will, with Andre Le Bon, will fetch the lobsters. Ah, fun stuff. Good old Jack. So I found a cool article written in National Geographic uh, marking Cousteau's 100th birthday. This was from 10 years ago, obviously, because now he would be 110. Is there anything, uh, any kind of special, like 100 is, 100 is what? Centennial. I mean, 50, 50 is, no, I mean, the 50 is gold, 25 is silver, it's 100. 100 is platinum. 25 is the silver jubilee. The silver jubilee? 50 is the golden jubilee. Okay. Diamond for 60. Sapphire. 70 is platinum. Okay. 75 is palladium. 100 years. They don't have one for. Because nobody makes it this far. Nobody makes it to 100. The palladium is the palladium anniversary. Here, honey, I got you a palladium rose. Isn't the palladium, uh, isn't that like a concert venue or uh, the palladium playing? Yeah. Or was that in uh, Rollerball? Is that where uh, Jonathan E. played his last round of Rollerball? There's a great movie. You ever get the chance? Classic. James Caan bashing skulls with those spike gloves and that steel ball. I don't know yeah. how it relates to Jacques Cousteau, but it's a cool-ass <laughs> movie. Palladiums, the Palladiums, that's why. Because it's, like, uh, it's like roller derby mixed with like football helmets. and Oh, yeah. They motorcycles. Got motor- motorcycles. Yes. And- Spiked gloves, and it's just murderous. It's just bloody and murderous. People get their head shot with that giant ball that shoots out like a cannon. Goes spinning around the roller roller rink. You know, it's a circular roller rink. Just for those who haven't seen it. We used to try to play rollerball when I was young. Let's play rollerball, that, you guys. That's, yeah. Why, uh, yeah. that's why when I was young, they had the disclaimer on the jackass <laughs> show. It's like, don't try this at home. We had mini bikes. And roller, roller skates and uh, our baseball mitts. We were towing each other around the streets. We weren't bad either. We weren't bad. Well, you we know, uh, that re- actually, that, that in, in true Segway fashion, that reminds me of the <laughs> silent world where the, the boys have those sweet underwater scooters and they're towing, you know, three oh, divers yeah. behind cruising around the reef there. Those were some beasts of underwater scooters, too. Those were giant monsters, yeah. I'm sure they needed a crane to lower each one in. But they they seemed to be having fun. Oh, they definitely did. And, again, you know, um, many years later, Jacques Cousteau would receive uh, a bit of harsh attitude for some of the things that went on in the 1956 release of The Silent World with... The molesting of the turtle and blowing yeah. up the reef and slaughtering the sharks and whales. But again, I, I think what, uh, what occurred over the next couple of decades where he, at one point, you know, it, it's understandable when you're the first guy really in the water, underwater, 
being able to spend the time, have the freedom of not being on an umbilical like the hard hat sponge guys were. And there's so much down there. You don't even think twice about breaking off a piece of coral, coral with a hammer and bringing it up and destroying <clears throat> some. But then later years when he saw going back to some of these places, some of the impact that right, they were human, human life was, was doing to the underwater world, it really changed his vision. And, and I think that's what later on when the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau came out in the 70s, there was a much more of a concert, you know, conservative effort yeah. going on, right? Right, yeah. He really had to put a, uh, a bigger emphasis on the con- conservation aspect of exploring the oceans and uh, seeing. He could see, though. Remember, he needed he needed a baseline to compare, so that took time. He had to go down, see what it looked like, and then come back in ten or fifteen years and see what you know man's impact on the ocean is from constant exploitation for the most part but um yeah right yeah and then early on one of the first episodes of the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was about sharks where he had old Dr. Eugenie Clark with him Dr. Eugenie Clark who unfortunately got taken out of pandemic madness 2020 challenge for the most influential, amazing diver in the world. Jacques Cousteau, though, is still in. By the way, people, Final Four. Tonight, uh, voting ends tonight, this evening. So if you haven't voted yet, get out there to the Great Dive Podcast website. Go to our Pandemic Madness 2020 page and vote for your favorite. James Bond, Sean Connery taking on Jacques Cousteau, and Sylvia Earle. Taking on Larry Green. Those are, are still in the running. Get out and vote, people. It's madness but yeah. still. But it's yes, even back to than it ever was. But yes, back to Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Jacques. What he did, why he matters, is uh, the title of this article from National Geographic News by Akur Khan, published June eleventh, twenty ten. Isn't there a little subtitle in parentheses under it? It says, Why He Matters, and then underneath it says, And You Don't. And You Don't. And You Don't. It's Jacques written, Cousteau, it's why written he with a French accent. <laughs> and why you are nothing. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a little more of a German. The Germans are writing this. This is Jacques Cousteau, Why He Matters, and Why You Are Nothing. You are nothing but a little splotch <laughs> on this planet. Jacques Cousteau is everything. Well, the actual subtitle is <laughs> marking. <laughs> there isn't a subtitle. Okay, sorry. <laughs> is marking Cousteau's 100th anniversary, five successes, one great legacy. Nice. And again, this was written 10 years ago because uh, it would be a 110th anniversary this year 2020 but it says the late Jacques Cousteau's 100th birthday is inspiring headlines and Friday morning a Google Doodle perhaps the ultimate internet accolade you know that little Google right, Doodle I that pops this. up uh, yeah. I, I, I do remember it as well um, but obviously this was written a decade ago because had this been written for his 110th it would also include the fact that the Great Dive Podcast is doing a show about him for his birthday as well. Now, 
would that not be truly the most ultimate of accolades? For us, it would have been, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, uh, school kids learn about Jacques Cousteau still today. Um, you still see you still see shows and stories about him. And this is looking at why is this ocean explorer such a legend? And they give us five good reasons why. That's cool. And I they... figured, and uh, you know, you and I are both fans of Jacques Cousteau and fa- fans of the team of divers on Cousteau, yes. on Cousteau's ship. The Calypso. I'm fans. Z- I'm a fan of the Calypso. It's I'm a Z fan Calypso, of yes. Z, Z Calypso. I'm a I'm fan fa- of the mini sub. I'm a fan of the helicopter. I'm a fa- you know where I kind of lost fandom a little bit was with that Alcyon, uh, that, that wind ship he got is... That's when he jumped the shark. That's when he jumped the shark? Yeah. Kind of lost me there, but the Calypso, big fan. The team. Oh, so so you liked him you liked him when he was clubbing the sharks, but when he jumped when he jumped the shark, (laughs) he had a problem with it. Exactly. There's something purist about clubbing the sharks. There's something contrived for the media about getting a big wind ship. It's fun to go back and, and see the mistakes that they were making. Well, uh, are they? I mean, th- anything that gets us to learn. It was, I mean, and that's my point. Is it, it what they were in a learning phase themselves? I right. I fully believe. I hesitate and, calling them mistakes. Is my thing because it has such a connotation like he was a he was an f up, which is not the case. I I would agree. I I don't consider yeah. him. I I don't consider what he was doing to be malicious. Right. At the time. I, I don't think he was maliciously doing things. He thought he was doing it in the name of science. He was science. doing it with what he was taught, it, you know, the, the way he was brought up and the things that he knew. It was decades later looking back going, wow, yeah, that's probably shouldn't do it like that again. Yeah. And I, aren't, aren't you, uh, at least I believe we're going to look back on this time and the way science is doing everything. Not everything, but many things, and we're we're going to say the same thing. We we were so ridiculous. What the hell were we thinking? But I guess the thing. Oh I'd yeah, like, like to every, say, everything going on in the in the world today. Like uh, uh, people trying their best to to get through this pandemic, and yes, you know, the, the, the were... world the world falling apart with violence going on, and, and the way we're reacting to it. As much as we think it's we're doing the best that we can right now. I guarantee you 20 years from now, we're going to look at this time and go, could have done this, should have done this, probably should think about this oh, next yeah. time. You know, of course, that's just the way the world works. Well, and knee-jerk reactions don't don't help anything. There's no thought being put into anything, just a lot of knee-jerk reactions, which, you know, has me wondering. But anyway, I was trying to say about Jacques, the revisionist version of him, you know, going back and... Because there are people that want to make him into a monster. You know, like anybody in history that's done something great for mankind, that's really pushed us forward. Uh, he's a human, and he's not perfect. So he gets a lot of flack for for doing what he did to the whales and sharks in this movie and blowing up the reef with the dynamite. And he's a womanizer. He had a, he had a whole complete second family and, and another you know, woman he was having an affair with. He, of course, you know, I love him for his flaws. I love that he was smoking and drinking down in 
Pepsi Lab or whatever. <laughs> Con Shelf. Con Shelf, thank you. Uh, I love that he was doing that. I love, you know, that he was just uh, who he was. He did not do anything politically correct, which is the bane of my existence. He was, again, a, a bit of a classic character of just a freewheeling man who who is yes. like turning turning a cheek to normal society which is why I'm living on a goddamn boat with my buddies <laughs> <laughs> drinking wine every night drinking brandy every night yes and uh and doing everything I can not to be in an office cubicle you look at his upbringing. If his father was somewhat of a, a playboy, right? He he was in a car crash. Uh, he originally, you know, not. I don't want to get too much into his history because I'm sure we'll talk about it. But he wanted to be a pilot for the French Navy. Well, the French Navy, yeah, right. He was in a car crash in a in a little mountainous road, you know, a little zippity doo dah road in the sports car. Which there's speculation he had a few cocktails. Yeah, and got uh, I don't think it's right? speculation. He was yeah. definitely, you know, it was a time where drinking and driving was something, you it was know, admired. <laughs> well, and he was just <laughs> zipping around with a bottle yeah. of wine and yeah, hey, crashing. baby, yeah. So is, the funny thing is, is, yeah, that accident is what led him to a life of scuba swimming because right. he, because he couldn't become a pilot because of that crash, right? And he. He was swimming because it helped him recuperate uh, from the accident. It was easier for him to be in the water, less painful. But uh, and his his youth over here in Connecticut at private school, I mean, he he did have a somewhat of a a playboy esque life. So he he had those qualities as he got older: the smoking, the drinking, the womanizing. Those qualities that I admire in a man. Yeah, the, uh, there's a there's that old Hollywood coolness, the James Bond esque, you know. Yeah, right. It, and this was basically before Hollywood, for all intents and purposes, before the big Hollywood. Is it is it ironic then that in the Great Dive Podcast, Pandemic Madness 2020, it's Cousteau going up against Bond? It is ironic. That's why it's going to be a huge, huge battle. Um, there can only be one. But uh, these two epitomize, you know, all the qualities of, I'm going to say it, all the qualities of manliness that are seem to be washing away with the, the political correctness of the 2000s. Okay, so let's, um, let's get into this little article. So number one reason why Jacques is a legend according to this article, is that Jacques Cousteau pioneered scuba gear. And it says here that with his iconic red beanie and famed ship, the Calypso, the French marine explorer, inventor, filmmaker, and conservationist sailed the world for much of the late 20th century, educating millions about the Earth's oceans and its inhabitants and inspiring their protection. Little of it would have been possible without scuba gear, which Cousteau pioneered when in World War II, he, along with engineer Emile Gagnon, co-created the Aqualone, a twin-hose underwater breathing apparatus. 
with the Aqualung, Cousteau and his crew were able to explore and film parts of the ocean depths that had never been seen before. Yeah, I think uh, people should know that he invented the Aqualung in order to film. His first love was wanting to film and bring back the underwater world to the surface. Right. In those so. early days, he was a um, mousquemer, and they were skin divers. And he, w- he had made a couple of those short films, right, like uh, Paris Week Maitre Dufon and Epave. Epave. <laughs> they were uh, they were limited though in in what they could really do time wise underwater. So yeah, it was he wanting to be able to stay down longer, being able to breathe. He wanted that freedom to move that just wasn't available at the time. Is where they ended up designing and building and creating what we know now as the scuba regulator. You know, back then, it wasn't the brand name Aqualung. It was a device, the Aqualung. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, if we look all the way back, I I can't believe it's been so long since we've done a Cousteau episode. Looking all the way back, it was episode 19 when we did JC Part 2. Nice. You know, where where we went into the designing and the building, all those early days right. of how that Aqualung came about. That was a cool episode. That was a fun episode. That was episode a great episode. That was a great episode. I'm going to go back I'm gonna go back and re-listen to that one myself. Oh, you don't have a memory? Do you even TGDP, bruh? Hells no, <laughs> bruh. Come on. Are you taking this seriously, Mott, or what? Well... So that's the first reason he's he's basically immortalized in the uh, in the minds and hearts of those of us who live live to dive. Yeah. So the aqua lung early on being a device later became trademarked by a Rene Buzos who owned a sporting goods store in Los Angeles, California, and he ended up getting a contract from Air Liquide to import into the U.S. and sell that device. And uh, Buzo, you know, he just had like a sporting goods shop that he later changed the name to U.S. Divers and registered the name Aqualung officially. Wow. Interesting little tidbit of diving equipment history and trivia. Yeah, um... Kind of cool, you know, and, and Rene, Rene Buzo was another Frenchman, but he, he had the brains to coin the name U.S. Divers to make it sound really American, and it sold like hotcakes. With that familiar military font. Right, yeah, that, uh, that, that, that military stencil font, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember back in the day, I mean, that was... Uh, U.S. Divers was a huge name. Scuba Pro was huge. But then over in Europe was like a whole different world of equipment. I learned in Europe. So the the equipment was all European. When I came back here, 
that was when I, I was like, well, we have completely different names here. They kind of became yeah. imprinted in we my, had, on my brain. We had Decor. Decor was big back decor in the day. Decor was very big. That was, and, and that was a like a small Chicago business, you know. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the name where Decor came from? It was Sam Davidson was was okay. the guy, right? Oh, and he just said Decor. But, yeah, cor- the Davidson Corp- Davidson oh, Corporation. Davidson Corporation. Okay, all right, good. Yeah, so uh, so I was saying, um, just a small company, basically a small like Chicago company. But hey, before you go it too much into this, they were a small company that made Giganto first stages with like a hundred ports on them. Do you remember uh, those things? Uh, well, eventually they did move <laughs> into that, but the early well, the early decor regulators yes, were. were but I know what you mean. They they were big heavy duty brass first stages. Uh, the nine sixty was right. the, the, the classic the swivel t- that yeah. classic swivel top. And then like how that many did, how many did so well for them that later on they came out with those extreme regulators that had the the, the spinning <laughs> oh, on both sides. Yes, yeah, they looked like a they looked like a, a modern day drone. Yes, you know, it was uh, insane, and to work on them was insane. I'm like. I just saw, you know, th- this O-ring's going to fit. <laughs> just places where bubbles would come out. But anyway. We also, over here, we had Voight. Oh, yeah, AMF Voight was huge. And the reason being is... And the, Healthways. Uh, well, yeah, didn't they combine? I could be wrong. But. Uh, well, there was Swimmaster. Like Voight and Swimmaster Swim, right, combined. Those were huge, though. They had a military contract. Uh, yeah. Those were standard issue in the military, the Voight's Swimmaster uh, regs, double hosers. I had one. My buddy gave it to me, who was a uh, special ops guy in Vietnam. That was what was issued to him in the sixties. Was a uh, one of those Voight swim masters, right? The blue ones, the yeah, dual hose yeah, regulators, yeah, yeah. Yeah. which yep. are super common. I thought, oh, I got it. It's worth a lot of money. Nah, it's worth like forty-five bucks or something. Forty-five. Damn you! <laughs> it's it's worth like forty-five dollars to somebody who really wants it. <laughs> exactly. And I, he gave it it's, to me. It was really nice. It's actually nice. worth yes. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but if you got somebody who really wants to spend some money, it's worth like forty five bucks. Exactly. <laughs> Number two, Cousteau's underwater documentaries brought a new world to viewers. Yes, it brought the undersea world right right to your living room, people. Oscar winning films. Oh yeah, Be- well, for I would because imagine. at, a, at yeah. a time like a com- in color complete movies, complete films w- with sites that. The world had never seen. Oh yeah, and I mean, really, when you look at it, he kind of he invented the format for the underwater documentary. Many have copied; few, if any, have have really done him justice. I think um, he said it best himself when he said, <laughs> "The best way to observe fish is to become a fish." <laughs> to becomes a fish. Uh, it says here, Jacques Cousteau's pioneering underwater documentaries, including the Oscar-winning films The Silent World, The Golden Fish, and World Without Sun, had a storyline, said Clark Lee Merriam, a spokesperson for the Cousteau Society. Their message was, come with me and look at this wonderful thing and see how it acts and behaves, said Merriam who had worked for Cousteau for nearly 20 years before, before the Explorer died in 1997. It was a deep and complete introduction for the general public to the undersea world. 
you know, nobody knew what the fish did down there. Nobody, I mean, the, the underwater, I mean, is as much as like this was in the 1950s, you know, not the 1400s. In a way, underwater was still those sea monsters on the map. Right. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, b- because no one had really experienced it. Right. I mean, they had, they had done a few things, but the general public still was, you might as well have been in the 1400s, you know, where their imaginations run wild, you know, everything is out to get you. Right. All the slimy and wild-looking creatures, because they were able to bring back a few pictures every now and then. Like, if you looked in the encyclopedia, you'd see these, you know, actual photographs of some crazy creature from under under the sea. You know, eels were thought to be man-eating, you know, <laughs> right, right, going yes. to destroy you. Giant whales, whale sharks, sharks, period, were, were evil and bent on destruction of man. Well, all sharks... Yes, all sharks. At, at, at this time were monsters that were the mortal enemies mm-hmm. of men. Exactly. You know, it took, it took decades, and although, like we were saying earlier, you know, is as destructive as their team was to the shark early on, as they started learning more and more of, like, well, there's actually many types of sharks, and sharks react differently, and different types of sharks react differently, and it took a while to, to gain a understanding of really what was happening versus just taking every single shark as a monster. Right. Well, it it didn't help. I mean, TV and the media continued to uh, prop up the shark as an evil man. They're nothing but man-eating machines kind of thing. I mean, even to, to the 70s where Happy Days came out and Fonzie had to jump the shark. It was a <laughs> life, a life-threatening stunt that uh arthur fonzarelli was about to undertake he he could have just jumped a couple of cars because the pool wasn't that big but in order to really show the risk to really show the the quote the cojones of arthur fonzarelli he had to jump over a shark in a in a swimming pool right correct uh and of course i think views on the shark started to change because that episode basically coined the term jumping the shark. It's when everything turned south and everyone realized sharks were not our enemy. Yeah, well said. <laughs> you don't even know what I said. You're reading something. I don't, Are no, you I reading was, about I, Arthur Fonzarelli? I'm, I'm you trying what to... Richie Cunningham said? Yeah, the great white shark is a rare animal, almost an endangered species. So uh, instead of being frightened by great white sharks, we should protect them. And uh, what, we what we can do is to protest against these killings as strong as we can and eventually to go and uh, say to the fishermen, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Very good. So yeah, he, uh, so he later realized the... What's the what's the term I want the uh, the act the action of his ways the uh, uh... he regretted yeah say. yeah he came later to regret on his his behavior later on he had the had the show Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau that went from 1968 until 1975 putting out. 36 episodes. Narrated by the Twilight Zone man himself, Rod Rod Serling. Serling. 
There's a little. There's another little tidbit of trivia. If if for any reason, any how can I put this? Is if for anything else, you listen to the Great Dad Podcast for these incredible, insightful tidbits, golden. Tidbits Golden of tidbits, trivia, P- palladium, can, palladium, palladium tidbits. <laughs> These are actually palladium tidbits. They did like four or five films a year, you know, when 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 they had this show, right? And they spent money, man. They, they I mean, it, it seemed like Cousteau would like just stumble into cash every now and again, <laughs> you know, and, and get really lucky. And then he'd be able to like con- continue on filming, you know, for another year and he'd run into a, a, you know, he'd be like broke and in debt and then he boom, he'd stumble across something else that would get him a bunch of cash where he could keep going again. And, but he went like all over the world, like studying, you know, sharks Everything. and coral reefs and whales and uh, villages and people in like these weird, unknown places on the planet and searching for sunken treasures and oceans as well as like inland stuff you know looking antarctica. at antarctica yeah antarctica sea otters uh the uh, manatees yeah it wasn't just undersea Pang- he did a bunch of uh topside as well he even became a little political he uh went down to C- cuba by invitation from fidel himself uh, Fidel at the time being very ecologically minded, very much a conservationist, and a and a and a big him. and a big time diver too. Fidel was known. Was to he be a, a big diver? A, yeah, yeah I didn't was, see him diving a, in that particular special with Fidel. There was a, and it was mostly topside, seeing the people and the culture of Cuba, but he he did remark of, you know how conservation minded they were with their fish farms and uh, how they continually tried to. Re, reinvigorate the the reef and the animal life that they take from the ocean, right? So they try to put back, and that was Fidel's big push. You know, for all you can say bad or negative towards towards uh, you know having quote unquote a dictator, um, he at least in that special, and maybe there was a lot of you know propaganda in it, but he cared very much about the people and his and his land and. Um, it was pretty good. I, I like that one, even though there wasn't much diving. Well, he ended up getting very political yes. in his older age. Yeah, well, he's no, trying, no, no, no. trying to affect uh, change in the world. You have to you know, influence politicians and people. Unfortunately, that's where the waters get murky in this world. And uh, that's why we're not going to get political. Right. We're just going to keep talking about the good stuff like... Drinking wine underwater and brandy underwater yeah. and smoking underwater on con shelf. Can you believe that? Way, way cooler than Sea Lab. I'm going to go out there and say <laughs> con shelf was way cooler than Sea Lab. Changed my mind. <laughs> I can't because I agree with you ten thousand uh, percent. Number number three reason: Ka, uh, Cousteau pioneered underwater base camps. They mentioned here in, diving, right? Yeah, and he says uh, Jacques Cousteau and his team created the first underwater habitat for humans, Conshelf One, which begat Conshelf Two and Three. The habitats could house working oceanauts for weeks at a time. It begat it, eh? It begat. Thou like, shalt do Conshelf, and Conshelf One shall beget Conshelf Two. And Conshelf uh, 2 shall beget 
conch shelf three. Most and people don't realize shall be what known that was. as thine conch shelf brothers. Most people don't realize, but that was the breaking plate of <laughs> <laughs> that you heard in those that we haven't done in a while These. of amendment uh, <laughs> commandments eleven through fifteen. These five con these five psh, three con shelves shall be known as the con shelf uh trio, whatever. He was ahead of even the United States Navy, which was doing the same thing in proving people could live and operate underwater for extended periods of time, Merriam had said. Broadly speaking, it's technology that industry uses now because it's a lot less expensive to keep someone down there working than to have them down there for 30 minutes and come back up, she said. Yeah, I, and is it, I would go out and say a little bit further and go, uh, it's probably less risky than popping yeah. them up and down over and over on their body. Well, yeah, just like, um, just like everything about scuba diving, going down and swimming around underwater that's the easy part. Anybody can do that. It's the coming up. Right. Is always the, the dangerous part. There's a cost to be paid for, for your time underwater, right? Yeah. It is the penalty of and the deep. You know, when you, when you look at, you know, C-Lab, and like we did that story on C-Lab, it was, it was the Navy. So it was really nerdy in many ways. Like, Totally by the book, you know, right. uh, no, you're not allowed to have fun. Like they're getting in trouble because somebody had a girly magazine, you know, uh, picture right. that they brought down with them. Whereas Conshelf. It's like, fuck you. <laughs> we, we bring these booze and wine and brandy every night. Uh, they yeah. got a, they got a, like a hookup room for Jacques. You know, he brings a Simone <laughs> in for uh, some conjugal visits. <laughs> Like he he had thought of everything that you were going to need down there. Well, you know, hey. C-Lab, it's like strictly business. At the end of the day, we're all humans. And human beings, you know, we are not a, 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 a Navy dive manual. We are not a, a, a military regulation. We are human beings. Yeah, so Conshelf 1, uh, which is short for Continental Shelf Station, was was built in 1962 and was put in the water in uh, two Addas off of Marseille. So 30 feet down, uh, they spent a week down in the habitat, Falco and a guy named Claude Wesley. Conshelf 2 was a year later. They did that over in the Red Sea. So this was a bigger habitat known as the Starfish, and they were in 30 meters for a week and then later Conshelf 3 1965 was in 100 meters of water uh down in the <clears throat> down in the Mediterranean so mostly funded by like uh petrochemical companies right because they were at the time they were looking at ways to you know this is this is still in the days of how can we take resources from the underwater world you know, before he really moved to the conservationist of protecting that world. You know, here he was being funded by oil companies saying, you know, uh, can we put people underwater to work for long periods of time mining for oil, basically? Well, yeah, that's that was the, 
the big push for it. I'm sure there, again, we talked a bit about the political aspects of it. Oil is politics, and there's money involved. And I know right after that, uh, that the success of Conshelf 3 is basically proving that, yeah, it's easier in the long run, and it's we're able to do it to put divers down extremely deep for a long period of time. That's when saturation diving really kind of started booming. Yeah, and uh, the when the Navy got going, like kind of in the middle of the whole conshelf game, you know, Cousteau and his crew were already already been down there and figuring it out. Cousteau and Sea Lab, exactly. Sea Lab <laughs> came into the game like '64. Uh, the fourth reason is Cousteau helped restrict commercial whaling. Cousteau intervened personally with heads of state and helped get the numbers necessary for the International Whaling Commission to pass the moratorium on commercial whaling in 1986. The moratorium remains in place today, though some countries still hunt whales in the name of scientific research. And again, there is that pretty brutal and graphic scene in the silent world where they... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ran over the the whale baby just, whale yeah i just tore that thing to smithereens and and then killed it and even they at one point they they tried to they tried to throw a harpoon at one of the big ones you know before that scene well that was a fake harpoon though in his defense it was a just a piece of wood that didn't have an arrow on it it didn't it wasn't able to pierce he was just. He was just. He, was, he wanted to give it. A, he wanted to give it a give go. It a go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is it like oh, to kill the whale, <laughs> Captain Ahab? It's like uh, walking into a liquor store with a fake gun. And just <laughs> pretend, I wanted, uh, wanted to feel what it was like. Rob, I want to feel like it was like to hold up a liquor store. Honestly, officer. But yeah, so early on, right? They, did, they didn't know, and I, I, I can, I can see that because this is thirty years later. This is nineteen eighty-six when he realized what's going on in the whaling world, mm-hmm. compared to thirty years prior, just getting out and coming across the whales. It took some time to learn some things. You know, being pioneer in any field has its you'll look back and say, what the hell were we doing? But it's the only way you learn, man. So everybody just lay off a shock. (laughs) (laughs) The fifth reason was that Cousteau helped stop underwater dumping of nuclear waste. So now we dump it. Where do we dump it now? Send it into outer (laughs) space. Send it to the moon. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so he says Cousteau organized a popular campaign against the French government plan to dump nuclear waste into the Mediterranean Sea in 1960 and took his fight straight to the President of the Republic. Cousteau faced off with General de Gaulle in France about the proposed dumping, and he continued to oppose nuclear power, Merriam said. Hmm. He acknowledged that it was a clean power source and full of possibilities, but felt that as long as we're dealing with waste that we don't know how to handle, we should not pursue it. In the end, the train carrying the waste turned back after women and children staged a sit-in on the tracks. Turned back to? 
to dump it in the park. <laughs> we dumped it uh, in another We got to get rid of this somewhere. Can't go in the med. It's going to have to go in the Atlantic. Get it, get it over there. The, in a way, nuclear power is a bit like rebreathers. It is a much more efficient way to, to dive. But is the technology there to really do it safely? Yeah, and that's where he certainly was with, with nuclear power, understanding that it had a lot of possibilities. But again, so this is the, you know, in the 60s, he's realizing this, which is also where he got in, into his environmental conservationist thinking from what we looked at early on in the silent world where it was just go down and the underwater world is all these new places to to exploit in a way and take advantage of and use for resources later on he became conservationist towards the underwater world Mm -hmm. we're looking at nuclear power wow yeah it's amazing what it can do but we're producing a waste product that is horrifically dangerous like we we've got to get this thing fixed before we really start pursuing it knowing what it's going to what it's going to produce i still think he envisioned a world where we we could use the resources of the ocean but we could sustain it no we doubt could, about it right we could so do too. it in a responsible manner that's what i think at least that's what I took away from his messages. Yeah, he says, uh, Cousteau's films and books could make the ocean seem like a boundless and bountiful wonderland, bursting with life and blessedly isolated. But the captain himself knew better. He thought it was a conceit of humans that the oceans are endless and that we can keep turning to them as an unending source of food and anything else he wanted, Merriam said. By all accounts, Cousteau was not always an ardent environmentalist. Nor was he always particularly sensitive to the creatures he was filming in the beginning. He started out as a spear fisherman and a world explorer, not a guardian. Merriam points to a horrific scene in The Silent World where the Calypso collides with a baby sperm whale, believing the animal to be near death. The crew shoots the animal and then also shoots the sharks that attack the now dead whale. Then we shoot some people looking at <laughs> We just start shooting. Which is what we were just talking about earlier, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but he says, Miriam remembers when the Silent World was remastered about twenty years ago. Everyone in the organ, everyone in the organization said we have to cut out these really ugly scenes that show all of this bad behavior. But Cousteau said, "No, no, we are not. It was all true, and it shows how far we've come and how dreadful humans can be if we don't curtail ourselves." So he knew he knew his behavior was bad, and what most public figures today would do would cut it and sweep it under the rug, and they right. would pre- pretend it never ever happened, and they would paint themselves in a in a perfect light of being a noble person their whole whole lives that has has never made a mistake. But you got to give a lot of respect to Cousteau, saying no, this was a this was an ugly day for me, and I've learned from it. And anybody who's followed what I've done in the future knows that I've grown. Very good. I think that's admirable. That is uh, definitely one of the things that make Cousteau great. Yeah, Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's legacy endures, it says. If Cousteau were alive today, 
He would probably be saddened by how little has been done to address pollution, overfishing, and other threats to the world's oceans, said Bill Ekbaum, Vice President of Marine and Arctic Policy at the World Wildlife Fund, an international conservation organization. But Cousteau wouldn't be discouraged. I think he was wise. I think he knew change takes time. You don't you don't turn a freight train on a dime or a cruise ship on a dime, you know. So the world you're trying to change. Yeah, yeah. It it takes time to get everybody into your cause and understanding right. the cause and under understanding, you know, what is the real cost of that new pair of tennis shoes that, that new version phone. of that, that new version of phone. the uh, of the cell phone yeah yeah yes. what is what is it really costing the world ekbon said he would be passionately concerned and i think even more articulate and aggressive in urging governments companies and individuals to protect the environment he said for her part the cousteau society's Miriam said we miss the visionary and we're glad he set us on a path that we're trying to keep on yeah. that was a nice little uh, article that Nat Geo put out uh, celebrating the 100-year centennial of the birth of Jacques Cousteau 10 years ago. So I think he had it right. He realized, this was his pure wisdom, I think, that the only way to make these changes, and I mean, you can strong-arm people and governments, you know, like our governments do, like... Do this or else. And it's effective for a short period of time. And eventually it ends up backfiring somehow. Versus what he was doing, which is you have to educate people. Have some faith that when they realize what is under the, the ocean surface, what how important it is to uh, just basically our existence. People yeah, themselves I- will go, okay, we have to make a change. And they'll affect that change. And let me just add to that with under the ocean surface, under the lake surface, especially for us here in in the Great Lakes area, the the greatest source of fresh water in the world. Yeah, we don't have coral reefs, but it's a major resource that we have. Under the surface of just rivers and ponds and streams and creeks, like the water all over the place, it's... It's disheartening to see how easy and willing people are to dump and litter under the surface of any body of water just because it's out of sight, out of mind, and they forget all about it. Not having any realization of that shit doesn't go away. Right. And and 20 years from now, 30 years from now, somebody's going to have to deal with it. Right. I, I, you know, hate to end on a more opt- optimistic viewpoint or an optimistic note, I don't think it's as bad as it has been. I think it's on the upswing. At least when I look around, when I go diving, is there still some trash? Yeah, but a lot of it's old. A lot of it's 70s. You know, there's a, a ton of old crap. Is There is new stuff, too. I'm not going to say it's gone. But I think for the most part, peer pressure social you know the the social pressures being socially responsible is a a bigger aspect of uh living today so that in that way that's good to me i mean it's actually going to bring about uh some change in our ecology 
well, I'm going to help keep that change going. I'm going to help continue on the the path and the vision that old Jacques Cousteau had in his in his later years. You're going to stop shooting. I'm not going to do the. I'm not going <laughs> to continue on the sperm whale killing path, but I'm going to continue on the conservation path of helping share the beauty of the underwater world with people and the magic and the mystery. I want to keep that vision still alive and also keep up the concern for the betterment of the world. Agreed. Well, there you go. Hey, happy birthday, JC. You done good. Yeah. Maybe we can get a, you know, a guest spot on the Calypso one day. Anyway. Okay. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one on Jacques Cousteau's birthday. Au revoir, mes amis. Here, (laughs) sign sign my logbook real quick, Brando. This is the most wonderful birthday present a Jacques could ever get. Thank you. Quadruple nickels. Way to go. Love, Jacques. And uh, thank you for this, like, palladium dive. (laughs) All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Au revoir. Get out there and vote. Pandemic Madness, Final Four. Take care. I was going to say that, so him trying to get all this money and the sponsorship, and it hearkens me to, it hearkens me, it it beckons my mind, my mind wanders to a, a little-known movie called Life Aquatic, which is somewhat of a parody, but I don't think it's as much of a parody as people may want to may want to believe of Jacques Cousteau's life, showing, you know, the influence of his wife, who was, you know, in that movie, she's the brains of the outfit. Oh, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had a son who dies in the movie, not to spoil it, but uh, we don't know if he's a son or is not, but the son dies in a helicopter crash. And that's a... And that's just a, like Jacques' son died yeah, in an exactly. airplane crash. Yep. Uh, you know, the red cap, everything. But the Draculas, he's trying to get money from Draculas, the, pro- <laughs> the producers, and uh, getting sponsorship and whatnot, and... It shows, oh, it's very much. It's very yeah. much a parody of the Cousteau's life in many ways. But how can you not love Zissou in thinking that he is modeled after Jacques? That just like uh, it strengthened my admiration for both of them. They both kind of uh, were, you know, uh, worked together to strengthen my. I think the admiration. people. Uh, I think the people out there do love Zissou. That's why he made it all the way to the Sweet Sixteen. In Pandemic Madness. I wish he would have gone a little further. Just a little further. Well, he, lo- he, he lost to a tough competitor of Lloyd Bridges there. That's, uh, that's a Lloyd tough is tough. True. Lloyd is tough. I think he's but, overrated, yes. though. Um, put that out there. 